Good morning. You guys doing well? How many are enjoying this heat? All three of you desert rats out there. How many thank God that we have air conditioning? Praise God. (laughs) Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. This is our Braveheart teaching series, Courage in a World of Compromise, Strength in Weakness is the title of this weekend's message. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Judges. Judges chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 22. We've been working our way through the, through the book of Judges. Quite an interesting book, to say the least. Uh, I want to start off by asking you a question. I want you to discuss this with the people sitting around you. What is your favorite underdog or comeback story? What is your favorite underdog or comeback story or movie or book or what comes to mind when you think of underdog stories? Discuss it with the folks sitting around you real quick. Okay, uh, what do you, what comes to mind? Any, uh, any movies come to mind? Anyone want to yell them out to me? Cinderella. Hey, hey, don't laugh. That's a pretty good comeback story, isn't it? Okay, you, you were agreeing with her, weren't you? What, what is it? Resurrection. <laughs> Can't beat that one. That's a good comeback story, no doubt. The best of all. Anything come to mind? What else comes to mind? Rocky. I was Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. How many were thinking Rudy? Yeah, that's a good one. Joseph. Yeah, that's a good one in the uh, in the book of Genesis. Unless you're thinking of some other Joseph, I don't know, but uh, but I, I've got my list here. I got Rocky, uh, Karate Kid, Sea Biscuit. I had someone say uh, told me that. Um, how about the uh, Diamondbacks 2001 World Series win against the New York Yankees? Wasn't that good? That was a good one, no doubt. Uh, Braveheart, of course. How about this one? The, the Miracle or Miracle 1980 Olympic uh, team, hockey team? That's a good one. Oh, most of you over here don't even know what I'm talking about, do you? You guys are look, looking at me, what is he talking about? Uh, radio. Remember the Titans? I had someone uh, on staff say, how about Water Boy? (laughs) That was a messed up, that's a messed up movie. And then I I think I heard somebody this morning say, me marrying Nancy. Oh, that's a, that's a major, uh, major miracle comeback underdog story right there. It was more like her marrying me, huh? No, no, not, not at all. Hey, so this story, the story of Gideon, we kicked it off last week. We're going to spend three weeks on Gideon. It's in the book of Judges here. The story of Gideon is much more than a great underdog or comeback story. It'd be a little bit like, be like Pop Warner football team beating the Arizona Cardinals. Though they have had a few seasons that maybe a Pop Warner team <laughs> could have come pretty close, but probably would never be able to beat them. And really the thesis statement here of what we're going to talk about, strength and weakness, is when circumstances look the bleakest, when circumstances look the bleakest and our strength is the weakest, is when God's presence, power, and peace are the greatest. There is no doubt about that. And... uh, and that's, that's really uh, kind of the, the thesis statement of this uh, teaching today. 2 Corinthians 9.12 puts it this way, His power is made perfect in our weakness. His power is made perfect in our weakness. What in the world does that mean? That's what we're going to talk about today. How can I experience His power in the midst of my weakness when I'm struggling the most? And so we met this guy, Gideon. Where was he when we first met him? He was in, he was cowering in a wine press threshing wheat. What in the world is he doing there? This is crazy. Well, him and his people are hiding from the Midianites. They're getting the living daylights beat out of them and they're hiding up 
in the mountains and the caves like wild animals and when they would go down to flatter areas and try to try to grow some crops and have animals, these Midianites would come in and destroy everything that they had. So he's quite frightened. And do you remember the very first words that God spoke to him while he's cowering in this wine press? He says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of what? Valor. Valor. That's crazy. He's anything but that. And here's the... The phenomenal thing about the gospel and about the Christian life is that God does not call the equipped, he equips the called. He doesn't call the strong and the brave, he makes strong and brave those he has called. That's what he's doing in our lives, that's what he's working on with our lives. And oh, once again, takes us back to what is the most frequent command in the Bible? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. What's the most frequent promise in the Bible? I will be with you. So check this out. So to the degree that you understand that the Lord is with you, the Lord is with you, the Lord is with you, is to the degree that you will be able to take on this identity that says, I am God's, you know, person of mighty valor. Uh, and, and I think that's important for us to see. That's where we're headed with our study this morning. So let's pray. We're going to do a little bit different this morning. We're going to actually work through the text completely, and then we'll come back to the notes, okay? So that's where we're headed. Let's pray, and then we, need, we certainly need help to uh, understand this and apply it to our lives. And then we'll read our text and, and unpack our notes. God, we are delighted to be here today. We love you. Father God, We thank you for our dads, our fathers, but most of all, we thank you that there has never been an earthly father who wants to answer his children's request and give them joy as much as you, our heavenly father, wants to answer our request and give us joy. We thank you for that. In your perfect love, you want what is best for us. And in your infinite wisdom, you know what is best for us. And in your unlimited power, you will do what is best for us. We pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that the truth that you are for us and not against us would be more than just clear to our minds, but real, real to our hearts, strengthening us in weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities so that you would be most glorified in us because we are most satisfied in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Take a look at this text. Judges chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Then Zerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Now keep in mind, so he calls, Midian, he calls Gideon to raise up a, a group of warriors to fight against the Midianites. And uh, he would, you know, very unlikely candidate, but God is kind of building courage into him and trying to get him to, to go with his plan. And so that's exactly what he's doing. And you're going to find this really peculiar what God is going to do here as he's gathering the troops. He's got all these troops together and they're getting ready to take on the Gideonites. I'm sorry, the Midianites. <laughs> I wonder how many more times I'm going to do that this morning. Gideon, Midian. The Midianites, Gideon, with, with all of his gang, are going to take on the Midianites. And then in verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Stop there just for a minute. Here's the problem with success, is that it tends to go to our what? Our head. Success tends to go to our head, and failure tends to go to our heart. Why is that? Because we're not working from our identity, we're working for our identity. We should be working from our identity in him, that he is with us and we are his mighty men and women of valor. And out of that confidence, out of that emotional wealth, and then we do life, and then when we have success and failure, we'll be able to respond to it appropriately. He's trying to prevent them from pride here. 
Because immediately when we think we've done this, hey, look at me, I'm pretty great, we tend to put God on the shelf and kind of do our own thing. We all tend to do that. That's what he's trying to prevent here. And so in verse 3, now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling... Let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So two-thirds of his army, they're gone. All he does is say, hey, if you guys are afraid, uh, go ahead and go on home right now. 22,000, go home. Ten, he's left with 10,000. So he started off with 32,000. It's going to get worse. And the people, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water. By the way, let me just say something about that first little uh, pruning, you might say, culling, uh, re reduction of his forces. Uh, not, not such a bad idea, actually. Um, those who admit fear in public are more likely to retreat in battle. Fear is very contagious. Last thing you want to do is be uh, shoulder to shoulder with someone who's frightful in battle. And so that's probably really a positive thing. Their, their army is going to be much stronger because of that. But he's going to do something here that's going to seem real peculiar. And there's no really rhyme or reason other than the fact that he's just trying to reduce the ranks. God is. And so, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for, uh, for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go with you. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps water with his tongue as a dog laps... That's interesting. You shall set him, uh, set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and then, and, and, and likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. So here's the, the idea. The difference is between those that would grab water like this and lap like that, and uh, those, oh, I didn't probably have to do that, but I did it anyway, <laughs> just so you could see. But like, as opposed to those that just kind of bury their head down in the water. Now, some would think that it's because those that did this are more alert than those that kind of bury their head in the water, and I don't know that it really matters here. He's just trying to thin the ranks. And, uh, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. Now, what do you think Gideon is thinking about this time? He's like, what in the world is going on? I'm already struggling with a lot of a lack of assurance. We saw that in chapter 6. I mean, he's needing reinforcement and reassurance over and over again, keeps coming back to God. Remember the fleece, the test with the fleece. I mean, that, that in itself proves that he says, God, okay, if, if, if you're really with us and you want me to do this, then, uh, then I'm going to put a fleece out and let there be water in the fleece and let the dr uh, ground be dry. And then God does that and he says, okay, okay, God, okay, how about tomorrow morning when I wake up, let's do just the opposite, okay? So it just shows you this guy is struggling. He's like us. We struggle with assurance. God, do you really love me? Do you really care for me? Are you really going to take care of me? Because believe me, if you knew that and had assurance of that, you could take on the world. You could face anything. So that's what he's, you know, that's what he was struggling with. And I'm sure you're going to see that he's struggling with that now. He's like, what, 300 guys we're supposed to take on? We're supposed to take on all of these? This horde of Midianites? And actually, when you go down to verse 12, it tells you they're like locusts in abundance. The camels were, were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. I mean, we can't even count them. There's so many of them. And you want us to take them out with 300 of us? So the people took provisions. This is verse 8. Took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And then that same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. I mean, that's got to be just outrageous to him. He's like, what in the world? This is beyond... <clears throat> Now think about this. Some of you are facing this right now. This is beyond my ability. This is beyond our ability. This doesn't make any sense. The odds are against me. 
I feel like the odds are against me. The odds have always been against me in life. Yeah, they probably have. This is what uh, Gideon is experiencing. Notice what God says. I love this because over and over again, we saw it in chapter six. We're gonna see it right here. God is sympathetic with our questions, doubts, and fears. God, are you really with me? Are you really with me? But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. What? What are you saying? Go down behind enemy lines? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want you to go down there. I want you to take a step of faith here, Gideon. And I want you to go down behind enemy lines and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And then when he went down with Pura, his servant to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp, so he's behind enemy lines, he's kind of listening in, he's up close and personal to the enemy's tent, and lo and behold, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Now, there's a little bit of Hebrew humor here. A barley bread tumbled into a tent and flattened it? I mean, if I'm thinking, if I'm looking for a mascot, I mean, I wouldn't call my team, you know, the uh, barley loaves. <laughs> that doesn't sound too threatening, too powerful. I'm thinking like for a mascot, if God's going to give a guy a vision, it's going to be like a, a rock came down and crushed all the tents, or it's going to be a tornado. Yeah. Or like a, a sword came down and conquered them all. But no, barley loaf? you got to be kidding me. No one would have that as a mascot. And then I did a little research, Google, on, on Google research, and I found out that there is a team called the Montgomery Biscuits. <laughs> it's a real team. It's a baseball team in Montgomery, Alabama. The only mascot you can eat, Okay. <laughs> And that's weird. But here, here's the point. Here's the point. I don't miss the point. In God's eyes, he's nothing more than a barley loaf. He's weak. He's wimpy. But in God's hands, oh my goodness. He can take our weakness and he can take out the enemy through our lives and in our lives. That's, that's powerful. I mean, that's part of the, the picture here that he's painting. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, check this out. He worshiped. He worshiped. We're going to talk about that because he just goes, oh my goodness, God, you are for us and you're not against us. Oh my goodness. Oh, yes, I'm, I'm finally beginning to see. You're, you're opening my eyes to the beauty and the glory of who you are and what you're doing in my life. Oh, yes. He goes back and what does he do? He rallies and, and he returned to the camp of Israel and, and said, arise for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into their hands and all of them in empty jars with torches inside the jars. They're, they're, what, are, what are they missing there? <clears throat> no weapons. Where's your swords? Where's your machine guns? They had none, but they, did, they don't have weapons. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. And when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning, and this is important, at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set watch. So if you divided the Midianites up into thirds, you have one third that's been on the watch, you know, out guarding. Now they're coming off duty while another third is getting up. 
See what's going to happen? There's going to be a little confusion as some are a little droggy, some are still sleeping, they're kind of waking up and these others are coming off duty and they're, they're changing here. And so the, the middle of the watch, when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands, then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. The jars had to have sounded like uh, swords. And by the way, a trumpet and a torch equals a whole battalion. So when they looked out over the mountains, they saw these torches and they heard these trumpets. They're thinking tens of thousands of people on the mountains. And they hear these broken jars sounding like swords. And as these guys are getting off of duty, the other ones are going on to duty. They're confused. It's dark. It creates this chaos. And check this out. So then the 300 companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. And they held in their left hand the torches and in their right hand the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran and they cried out and fled and when they blew the 300 trumpets the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all of the army we'll end the reading of God's word right there this is God's amazing word to us this morning you can read the rest because they, they conquer them they chase them off they defeat them now here's what's what's the big idea here that you probably should walk away with what's the big idea here's here's the big idea Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Everything without Jesus equals nothing. So it doesn't matter what the odds are. What are the odds? What are you facing? What are you struggling with? If you've got Jesus, you're going to get through it. You can face it. That, that's the bottom line. Even if you have all the odds on your side without Jesus, you're going to fall flat. It's just a matter of time. That, that's the point. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's, that's uh, Romans 8.31. That's the truth of that. If God is for us, who can be against us? And by the way, you guys know this, that Jesus is the true and better judge, that all of these stories and judges and rescuers point us to. So, okay, now let's, pack, let's unpack these notes here. Okay, so three questions we're looking at. What are the dangers of pride? That's the first question. What are the dangers of pride? What are the blessings of weakness? Because God intentionally weakened Gideon's army. What is that about? How does that apply to our lives? And then the last big question is, how can I be strong in my weakness? That's where we're headed. So first of all, what are the dangers of pride? First of all, pride is a self-preoccupation. That's the best definition for pride. Pride is a self-preoccupation that has two sides. There's two sides to this coin called self-preoccupation. There is boasting and there's self-pity. Boasting is a superiority. It's an attitude of superiority. I deserve admiration because I have achieved so much. Self-pity is an inferiority. I deserve admiration because I have suffered so much. And so these are two sides of the same coin. Now, after you fill in the blanks, look up here because you got to get this because I see this happen all the time. Beware of trying to help someone who has self-pity and inferiority complex by trying to give them an inferiority complex. Does that make sense? Because all you're doing is hijacking or harnessing their self-preoccupation. You're just trying to redirect it. The problem, the biggest problem of our lives, whether it is boasting or self-pity, it's always this self-preoccupation. And you'll notice that the angel of the Lord in chapter 6 didn't do this to Gideon. Remember Gideon? He's in a lot of self-pity. Gideon, uh, the Lord says to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And what does Gideon say? Yeah, but... If he's with us, then why are we going through all of this stuff? And, and I'm from the, the least tribe, and this is messed up, and the clan that I'm from is, uh, 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 uh. come on, dude. He doesn't say, the angel of the Lord doesn't say to him, come on, Gideon, believe in yourself. Come on, Gideon, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. Come on, Gideon, just set your mind to it. You can accomplish whatever you set your mind to. He doesn't do that. By the way, that's very pervasive in our culture today. Would you agree? There's a whole billion dollar industry out there. It's called self-help. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, I am with you, O mighty man of valor. You forget that first part? It just becomes self-help. 
and how to. The second part, if you got the second part apart from the first part, it's self-help. And so you got to maintain both of those. That's why when it tells us in uh, Philippians 4.13, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Through Christ, through Christ. That's why in Judges chapter 6, verse 12, 14, and 16, what does God reemphasize to Gideon over and over again as he continues to say, I don't know, I don't think I can, I don't think I can, I don't think I can. He doesn't say, no, you can, no, you can, no. Yes, you can, yes, you can, yes, you can. He doesn't say that. He says, God is with you. God is with you. God is with you. See, that's what we need. We don't believe that. We don't actually believe that God is for us and not against us. We struggle with that. That's the biggest struggle of our lives. And that's the reason why we cower in the wine press. That's why we struggle so much in our lives. And that's what we need more than anything. Here's the next thing. Pride is a desire to promote ourselves. <clears throat> Boasting and self-pity. That's what we just talked about. Because we are empty of glory. We are in, glory is weight, significance, and importance. Probably the most significant verse that I learned a number of years ago that was so helpful for me is in Philippians chapter 2, and this is what the verse says. It says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, and then it goes on and talks about thinking about the needs of others around you. But those two words, I've got them on your notes, do nothing out of rivalry. Rivalry, the Greek word means a desire to put oneself forward, and conceit, the Greek word is vain glory, empty glory, hungry for respect, glory, honor, glory, hunger, or, or glory, hungry. So we are glory hungry, therefore we promote ourselves. That's the idea here. So pride is a desire to promote ourselves because we are empty of glory. Now listen, you got to get this. You got to understand this. We were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day and to look in the face of our creator and to receive from him all of the acceptance, security, and significance we'll ever need for life. To fill up our emotional tank and then be able to do life out of that. But we rejected God. We thought we were smarter than God. We thought that he was holding out on us. And we still continue to battle with that. So we turn our back on God. That spiritual alienation immediately gives us psychological alienation. We have turmoil inside because our heart will forever be restless until we find our rest back in him. Only he can satisfy the deepest longing of our heart. We were created for him, to know him, to walk with him, to experience him. And then out of that, he would satisfy our soul. And then out of that abundance, then we can respond to the issues of life more appropriately. Otherwise, we respond out of deficit, out of neediness, out of self-centeredness, out of self-absorption, promoting ourselves. And... Um, my wife and I, were, we, we pulled up to 35th Avenue and uh, Union Hills over here. We were sitting at the light and there was this car next to us and filled up with a bunch of dudes, guys, and they, I was watching. They were acting really crazy and, and one kid got out of the car and kind of walked around and then he, I was looking at him and he looked over at me and he goes, what are you looking at? And uh, my wife was sitting in the passenger seat and she looked down and she goes, don't look at him, don't look at him, don't look at him. And uh, why would a guy do that? Why, why would uh, someone want to try to bully you or try to promote himself or say, hey, you don't do that to me? Or if you slight someone, they want to come over there and take you out. They're glory hungry. They're empty. They obviously don't know the maker and they're not receiving from him all the sense of identity that, that any of us will ever need. And of course, it's easy for me to fall prey to that glory hunger too by saying something like, I'm looking at you, punk, you know? And by the way, anybody that can't pull their pants up, I, I think I can take them. Because you keep one hand right here to keep your pants up, you're gonna fight me with, gonna fight me with one arm? I can outrun you. And if I can, I'll turn around and just pull your pants down the rest of the way. Okay. Uh, you know, that's what's going through my mind at that time. It's like, it's like, that sounds a little glory hungry, doesn't it? 
yeah, so I'm needing Jesus as much as he needs Jesus. And so I got to remind myself of that because I want to take the little thug out. Somebody tells me not to look at him. It's like, I'll run you off the road, dude. You know, that's what I'm thinking. My wife says, don't look at him, don't look at him. Well, I'm not going to do that, okay? But, but there's appropriate ways to respond. And so, I mean, why do these young guys and gals join ISIS? They're glory hungry. They're glory hungry. I heard an interview with... Uh, um, LeBron James before they got their tails beat by Golden State Warriors and this is what he said he said I am the best basketball player in the world by the way if you're the best you don't need to tell people and the only reason why you're saying that is because you're feeling really really insecure I'm thinking he is the best don't need to tell me dude you're trying to convince yourself aren't you see and that's that glory hunger Glory hungry, we, we try to promote ourselves. And by the way, I just read this, and you can do uh, more study on this on your own, but if you take a lot of selfies, do a Google search on that, selfies connected with, with narcissism. So I went back and counted all my selfies. <laughs> I don't take that many selfies. I have my wife take pictures of me. And... Uh, so if you take a lot of selfies, it's tied to narcissism, psychopathy, lack of empathy for others, and self-objectification. And it reveals your insecurity and deep need for relational intimacy. Read some of the articles that are out there on Google. It actually, there's, there's a number of articles out there that uh, talk about, they're saying, hey, that's the, the, the times that we live in. You can do a Google search on that. So, okay, so that's pride. Let's go to the next point on, as it relates to pride. So, so preoccupation, glory, hunger, pride is characterized. So here's some characteristics of of pride is characterized by independence. So it's this independent attitude towards God. I don't need God. I don't need other people. And so independence, independent people don't read their Bible, pray, or connect with other Christians. That's, that's part of that. Perfectionism. I'm a perfectionist. Any perfectionist in the house? Show of hands. Okay. Welcome. I lead the pack. And it's just, it's part of this self-preoccupation, glory, hunger. Perfectionism is a perpetual dissatisfaction. No matter what you do, you're never satisfied. Then there's fault-finding, critical of others. There's a harsh spirit, condemning, commanding, condescending, pretense, can't share false feelings and failures with others, easily offended, this is thin-skinned, not teachable, you're defensive, attitude of entitlement, God in the world owes me. This is really a preoccupation with your rights versus your responsibilities. Hunger for attention, so that's the boasting and self-pity. Neglectful of others, so you're thick-skinned, insensitive to the feelings and needs of others. And I didn't put this on there, but this kind of wraps them all up. It's, it's really known as the secret enemy. In other words, as I went through this list and you couldn't identify anything on this list, that just means that you have a whole lot of pride, okay? Because the secret enemy, the more you have, the less you can see. The more pride you have, the less you can see. So if none of these, any of these didn't ring a bell, <laughs> wake up. Because we all have pride. We all struggle with it. It's an issue that we all struggle with. And so James 4, 1 through 10 tells us that it causes fights and quarrels. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And believe me, I do not want God opposing me. I want his help in every aspect of my life. Proverbs 16, 18, it says that it's destructive. So, okay, so what, what are the blessings of weakness? Because in verses 3 through 8, we see God intentionally weakening Gideon's army. Here's the first thing. If the goal is dependence on God, then weakness is an advantage. <clears throat> so if the goal in the Christian life is dependence on God then weakness is an advantage to our lives. Let me ask you this. Do you, does anybody here think that you can actually get to heaven based on your good works? Do you, anybody? Don't raise your hand, okay? Because if you do, if you feel that way, I'll, I'd love to talk with you at the very end. Because guess what? You can't. How many are convinced that you, there's no way in heck that you can earn a right relationship with God and go to heaven. That's the Bible. You know what that tells me? You and I are desperate for a savior and we have one in Jesus. Do you realize how significant that is? The very fact that you're saved, oh my goodness, 
That in itself. How many think that you can experience more of the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in your life apart from the work and the power of the Holy Spirit? Anybody? No, I know I can't. I'm desperate. I, I, I need more of that in my life. So you're desperate for him. You're desperate for him. How many think that uh, you're going to face things in this world that are way beyond your own personal uh, smarts and ability? Yeah, all of us. Every one of us. It's just a matter of time. You're desperate for God. How many think that you can find satisfaction in this world in something in creation apart from the creator? I mean, if you haven't figured that out yet, it's just a matter of time. I mean, it's a matter of time. There's no, there's no married relationship or romance. There's no amount of money. There's no job promotion. There's no big house on the mountain. Nice car. I mean, if you pause long enough between your happiness highs, you're going to see that that past thing didn't. I mean, it, it, that happiness high lasted for a little while, but then you're looking for that next big buzz. You know Why? Because everything in creation is one big finger pointing towards the creator to show us we are desperate for him. Only he can satisfy the deepest longing in our heart. And so if the goal is dependence on God, then weakness is an advantage. And boy, we have the advantage because we have a savior. And the cross eliminates both superiority and inferiority. How's that? It eliminates superiority by telling us that you and I are more sinful than we ever dared to think. We were so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. How could I ever feel that, I, that I'm better than you? Because somehow God has accepted me because I'm better than you. None of us can say that. None of us have a, a higher ground on the other. We were so sinful, Jesus had to die. That, that levels out the the superiority attitude, but it also it doesn't, doesn't make us inferior because he loved us so much, he wanted to die for us. That eliminates inferiority. How could I ever feel low and less than anybody? So it creates this, this humble confidence. Next thing on your notes, weakness is a desperate need for God that is always true, but not always felt because, because of pride. Because of pride. And so Acts 17.28 just makes it very clear that in him we live, we move, we have our being. Your very breath, your heartbeat is dependent upon him whether you realize it or not. We take that for granted all the time. And then 1 Corinthians 4.7, it says, for who sees anything different in you, LeBron James? Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? Yeah, but I worked hard. Well, you worked hard because God gave you the opportunity to work hard. He gave you the ability to work hard. Everything that we have comes from him. 2 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, when we measure or compare ourselves with one another, we are without understanding. We are not in touch with reality because we, we kind of feel better about ourselves sometimes when we compare ourselves with others. He says, That's, you're not in touch with reality. And then one of the most convicting verses is Psalm 36.2. For me, it says, There is no fear of God before their eyes, for he, the wicked, flatters himself in his own eyes. So he flatters himself in his own eyes that this iniquity cannot be found out or hated. I cannot detect my own iniquity or hate my own iniquity because I'm a pretty good guy. Look at me. I'm really wonderful. I'm great. Tell me that I'm wonderful, please. I'm going to just gather around me people to tell me how wonderful I am. And I'm going to stay away from all those negative people. I don't want to live around negative people. They always want to point out all my faults all the time. Well, this is exactly what he's saying. You have no fear of God in your eyes. And for he, the wicked, flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out or hated. Weakness is a desperate need for God that is always true but not always felt because of pride. I love... Uh, C.S. Lewis's definition of humility, he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It is a blessed self-forgetfulness. Why is that? Because, because we are enthralled. We are enthralled by God's glory. I love what uh, David Tripp says, life is one big glory war. Your heart will either be ruled and shaped by an anxious pursuit of created glory or find its rest in the creator's glory. Now, 
Last point under this one, the blessings. God will sometimes reduce the size of our army, figuratively speaking, to put us back in touch with reality. What is reality? Our desperate need for him that brings humility. This blessed self-forgetfulness of, of being captivated by his beauty and his glory. Psalm 119.67, listen to what the psalmist says. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep his word. Psalm 119.71. It is good for me that I was afflicted. When was the last time you said that? Oh boy, it was good for me that I'm going through marriage problems. Oh boy, it was good for me. My finances have collapsed. Uh, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. He's talking about a thorn in his flesh. But he said to me, and listen to these words. These are pretty powerful words. But he said to me, this is God interacting with the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When was the last time you boasted about your weaknesses? We don't boast about our weaknesses, but he's saying, I'm boasting my weaknesses because, man, that's when I have opportunity to encounter God and experience him in ways that otherwise I would never experience. For the sake of Christ, then, check this out, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I've gone through things in my life that I wouldn't wish on my, my worst, worst enemy, and yet I wouldn't trade it for anything. Because it was during times like that that it fortified my faith, it built into my character, and gave me an awe and an intimacy with God that I wouldn't trade for anything. He's wanting to drive our hearts closer to him. That's why he reduces, you know, the size of our armies. Now, what does that mean, that God will sometimes reduce the size of our army? It could mean loss of job, loss of spouse, loss of health, family, work, church conflict, wanting to get married or have kids or to have a certain career, but you can't or to have your kids turn out a certain way, but they don't. It's any kind of trouble, trauma, or tragedy. Not that God is directly, but he is certainly indirectly, indirectly allowing these things into your life to press your heart closer to his. To press your heart closer to his. Listen to what Johnny Erickson Tata says. She, she knows suffering. This is from her book, When God Weeps. God is like a father. God is like a father, doesn't just give advice, he gives himself. He becomes the husband to the grieving widow, Isaiah 54, 5. He becomes the comforter to the barren woman, Isaiah 54, 1. He becomes the father to the orphan, Psalm 10, 14. He becomes the bridegroom to the single person, Isaiah 62, 5. He is the healer to the sick, Exodus 15, 26. He is the wonderful counselor to the confused and the depressed, Isaiah 9, 6. The one at the center of the universe, holding it all together, in whom we move, breathe, and have our being, gives himself to us. He gives himself to us. Remember, I am with you, oh mighty man of valor. I am with you. See, that's got to be more than just a concept. It's got to be a reality deep within our heart. And we need the Holy Spirit to light it on fire deep within us. And we need to seek him with all of our heart. And if we will, and if we do, we will find him. We will find him. Hudson Taylor puts it this way. God wants you to have something far better than riches and gold, and that is helpless dependence on him. How can I be strong in, in my weaknesses? I think the key is found in verse 15, worship. And I think also there's glimpses of what is uh, the key is also found in verses 16 and 20 of our text. Clay pots, torch, trumpets, the shout, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon from his morning evening devotional, this was uh, from September 
the 20th in the morning, he's actually speaking on the verse found in Judges 7.20, the sword of the Lord in Gideon. Listen to what he says. It's really powerful. I think it really applies to us here this morning. Gideon ordered his men to do two things, covering up a torch in an earthen jar. He commanded them at an appointed signal, break the jar and let the light shine, and then sound with the trumpet, crying, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. This is precisely what all Christians must do. First, you must shine. Break the jar which conceals your light. Throw aside the bushel which has been hiding your candle and shine. Let your light shine before men. Let your good works be such that when men look upon you, they shall know that you have been with Jesus. Then there must be the sound, the blowing of the trumpet. There must be active exertions for the ingathering of sinners by proclaiming Christ crucified. Take the gospel to them. Carry it to their door. Put it in their way. Do not suffer them to escape it. Blow the trumpet right against their ears. Remember that the true war cry of the church is Gideon's watchword. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. God must do it. It is his own work. But we are not to be idle. Instrumentality is to be used. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. If we only cry the sword of the Lord, we shall be guilty of an idle priest. Presumption, And if we shout, the sword of Gideon alone, we shall manifest idolatrous reliance on an arm of flesh. We must blend the two in practical harmony. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the responsibility of man, sovereignty of God. They combine together wonderfully. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. We can do nothing of ourselves, but we can do everything by the help of our God. And that's the, that's the key of this whole text. Strength and weakness. Let us therefore in his name determine to go out personally and serve with the flaming torch of holy example and with our trumpet tones of earnest declaration and testimony and God shall be with us and Midian shall be put to confusion and the Lord of hosts shall reign forever and ever. That's a great devotional. It's a great way to start the morning off. Yes, God is for me. He's not against me. Now, here's the last fill in the blanks. We're wrapping it up right here. Pride is a worship problem. We can't think about ourselves less until we start thinking about our Savior more. There's a wonderful story found in 2 Chronicles 20, chapter 20, verse 22. King Jehoshaphat is in battle and he does something really quite interesting. He sends the worshipers out first, and when they begin to sing and praise, the Lord does what? He set an ambush against their enemies. What is that about? I think that there is great warfare in worship. Worship is a cure to worry and weakness. See, your greatest defense against the trials and temptations of life is a rehearsing of the greatness and the goodness of God in living for his glory. What does that look like? It looks like this. God, thank you. you spend your day thanking God that you have never been more loved. You spend your day thanking God. God, thank you that nothing can ever separate me from your love. Oh, God, thank you that you are for me and not against me. Lord, let me understand what that means. May that not just be a concept. May it be a reality within my heart. God, thank you for that. Oh, God, this, this job situation that I'm facing right now, I'm really frightened. I'm cowering in the wine press right now. But, God, I know that you're speaking to me these words. I am with you, almighty man of valor. May those truths sink deep within my heart. See, that's worship. You're filling your life with the worship of your God who will never leave you or forsake you. And then here's the next one. The joy of self-forgetfulness, humility, comes when a superior satisfaction in Christ takes us out of our self-preoccupation, pride. See, when we're too busy looking up at God's glory, we can't look down when we won't look down on others or feel smug about ourselves. Second Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge 
of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let me read to you a quote from... John Piper, he says, no one would go to the Grand Canyon to increase their sense of self-esteem. Nobody stands on the edge of the Alps or the Rockies in order to go there to feel better about themselves. Do you know why we go there? Because you were created to be satisfied with splendor, not self. You were created to be infinitely, eternally, fully, joyfully satisfied in a grand splendor, not a great self. Lay down your, your quest for the applause of men and the approval of men and begin to get on a quest for the one thing that will satisfy your soul, the splendor of Jesus Christ and all that God is for you in him. Last point on your notes, we can have strength and weakness because of the ultimate underdog and comeback story, the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior. Philippians chapter 2, oh, it's powerful it says that God became a man, not just any man, he became a servant, and he didn't just become a servant, he died, he didn't die any death, he died on the cross, he was emptied of glory so that we could be filled with glory, we could have all of the, all of his presence, power, and peace, all of the acceptance, security, and significance we'll ever need to face anything. So let me ask you this, do you know him? And are you walking with him? Have you made a commitment of your life to him? Do you know him like what we've been talking about here? You can. And if you'll acknowledge your sin, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, confess him as Savior as we pray, man, you are welcomed into the family of God. If you're our guest here with us this morning, thank you for being with us. I'd love the opportunity to meet you and buy you a drink from our cafe. Uh, for being our guest here. And if you'd like to have prayer for any particular reason this morning, we'd love to pray with you. There'll be leaders up front that will be up here to, uh, to pray with you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. I'd like to pray 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9. It's there on your notes. So for we have this treasure, this superior satisfaction in Christ in jars of clay. Yeah, these, these broken bodies to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So we do not lose heart. Thank you, God. Though our outer self is wasting away, we live in this fallen, broken world. God, we're thankful that our inner self is being renewed day by day. Thank you, God, for your strength is made perfect in our weakness by your grace, for your glory, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.